You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. In a year where we've been expecting, hyping, anticipating the greatest quarterback movement we could ever see in one offseason, one piece is staying the same. Big Ben has agreed to a restructured contract. He'll be with the Steelers for another year. And as everybody does all sorts of cartwheels in Pittsburgh, I say congratulations. You just made sure that for the next year, you'll have the worst quarterback in your division. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, Sirius XM Channel 80, the ESPN app. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests, we got a bunch of them, are going to join us on the Goodyear hotline. We'll get into some breaking news out of LSU around Les Miles. Uh, we're also, in about uh, 10 minutes, going to be joined by music icon Gladys, Gladys Knight. You heard that right. But we're going to start the show with some straight talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. And it's in the form of Big Ben. Everybody's so enamored over certain brands. And I want to be clear here. Anything I have to say about Ben Roethlisberger has nothing to do with who Ben Roethlisberger, the quarterback, has been. See, there's got to be some point where you, as a fan and as an organization, have to separate yourself from where you've been to where you're going. You have to decide at some point that no matter what we have accomplished, we're going to make sure we start accomplishing something better for our future, and that future needs to start now. That's something that wasn't anticipated well by the Steelers, and as a result, they find themselves lacking at the quarterback position. They find themselves stuck in a situation coming into this offseason where Big Ben had such a massive cap number, there was no way he could come back that way. They don't have the space to sign him back that way, so it became a will Ben play for less, and will the Steelers keep him on no matter what that price tag is? Now, not shockingly, they've agreed to terms that's going to keep him there for one year. But so what? I mean, if you're the Steelers, and, and let's be real about Steelers fans. Steelers fans have at times called for the head of Mike Tomlin because he doesn't win enough Super Bowls. So let's hold that same standard all the way across the board and ask yourself a real question. Where do you stand in your division? I mean, Lamar Jackson, last time I checked, has an MVP. And there's been some questions about Lamar Jackson and what he needs to continue to develop in his game. But we all know that today, not over the course of his lifetime, but today, Right now, if you had to pick between Lamar Jackson and Ben Roethlisberger as your starting quarterback, you're taking Lamar. The Baker's been up and down at times with the Browns. It feels like Browns fans have been enamored with Baker, right? But then all of a sudden, Baker fell apart. Maybe it was the coaching. Now we get another year of Baker. Things start to look good all over again. Browns fans are hyped. Browns make the playoffs. Baker feels like he's on the rise. Pretty easy to find a way that makes Baker a better quarterback next year than Ben. All that leaves you is the Bengals. The Bengals and Joe Burrow. I'll go back to my experience uh, traveling with with game day, the time covering LSU and covering that year pretty closely with Joe Burrow. And I kept standing on the sidelines asking some of the best football minds we have, why are we not talking about Joe Burrow the same way we talked about Andrew Luck? And the answer repeatedly was, I don't know. I mean, you see what Burrow was able to do. And then he came to the Bengals, a just a, a dumpster fire of a team. We all know that. A team that really needs a lot of help across the roster and a team that, by the way, had a dreadful, and I mean dreadful, offensive line. Now, Burrow gets hurt. We all know that part of the story, and I think part of the reason it enraged so many football fans in general is because what he was doing was so good. Completing 65% of his passes for almost 2,700 yards, 13 touchdowns, five picks as a rookie with no training camp, with no OTAs to get ready. With no ability to come in and have a normal offseason, Joe Burrow still came in and looked good. So now you're the Steelers, and you're looking around saying, guys, don't worry about it. We got Big Ben back. I say, so what? For what? I mean, are we suddenly going to take the Steelers more seriously next year because they have Ben? I don't think so. 
It, it, tell me if I'm wrong. Triple eight, say ESPN, eight 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 seven two nine three seven seven six. Steelers fans you might think I've lost my mind. I'll take the, I'll take the pushback on it. We can fight about it. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Jason Fitz flying solo. I mean, you start thinking about where the Steelers are and what they need to add as the team, and then and then you say how they're going to do it. They don't have a lot of salary cap room, so they're basically acquiescing that they're going to run it back and running it back for what? What expectation are you going to have for a different result? This was a, a team that we were never sold on last season. Never. They didn't get the hype at undefeated at 10-0 that most teams ever seem to get. They didn't get the hype going into the playoffs most teams seem to get. Why? Because if you were watching the games, it just didn't look right. And Ben was part of the problem. Career lows in average yards per attempt. Career lows across the board. He just didn't look like himself. Now, you could say, hey, he was coming off a of rehab and had to get his elbow better. I get all of those arguments. But here's what you have to do in the offseason. If you're going to apply benefit of the doubt, you have to apply it to not only you, but also to your competitors. So if you're going to give me benefit of the doubt that says, you know what, Ben's going to get better, Ben's going to be healthy, Ben's going to turn around and be able to give himself a, a better opportunity next year. If that's the benefit of the doubt that you want to give Ben, perfect. Now you have to give benefit of the doubt to every other quarterback in the division. So Lamar's only going to get better. Baker's only going to get better. Burrow's only going to get better. The Bengals will get better around him. Where's that going to leave Ben? Where's that going to leave Ben? Where's that going to leave the Steelers? Triple eight, say ESPN eight 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 seven two nine three seven seven six. You guys might disagree with me. I know Marcus Spears disagrees with me. He thinks Big Ben has still got some uh, gas left in the tank. This is what he said about it on NFL Live earlier. Ben can still throw. He can still put the ball where it needs to be. Obviously, his mobility is an issue, like for most older quarterbacks. The Steelers have their work cut out for them as far as making sure Ben is insulated in this offense to where you're not asking him to do more or go beyond what he has the capacity to do. I mean, you think about what you're saying. I mean, Marcus is saying that Ben's got something left, but he's also saying that Ben's a, a liability. If your team's having to turn around and adjust to that point, again, 32% of his attempts went for first downs. That's the lowest rate for a full season in his entire career. His adjusted net yards per attempt, which gives credit for touchdowns and takes away credits for sacks, was his lowest for a full season since 2013. You talk about all the way across the board, and yeah, you can say there were some drop passes, all those other things. Doesn't matter. Ben was not good enough. Terrence in Madison. Terrence, thanks for calling the show, man. What do you got? Hey, thanks for taking my call. Listen, I, you know, what, what, the, the truth of the matter is, if you look to last year, we had no running game. A great offensive line. Oh, we're losing Terrence. We're losing Terrence. Uh, Terrence, I appreciate you hanging on. Sorry we couldn't get you in, but you're breaking up on us. So uh, let's get to James real quick in Connecticut. James, what do you got? Thanks for calling. How are we doing tonight? I'm just talking about Big Ben as a legend coming back from elbow surgery. Throwing 34 touchdown passes, but no running game, making it to the playoffs. I mean, it's been unbelievable at 37 years old. I, I can't think of anybody else I'd rather have a quarterback right now that's going to be better for the Steelers. See, but you're using part of it, and I, I appreciate the call. And I appreciate sentiment. Like, sentiment matters. I'm going to be cold and heartless for a minute. That's what I'm doing here. I'm turning off all emotion. Because I don't root for or against the Steelers, I have no emotion invested in this. So anything that Ben did before last year, I don't care. 
This conversation has nothing to do with what has happened for the Steelers or who Ben has been. Ben. <laughs> it has everything to do with what will happen for the Steelers and who Ben will be next year and how the Steelers figure out what they're going to do at the quarterback for the next three to five years. I think they've got the wrong answer next year and they have no answer for the second of those two questions. We'll continue to get you some of our thoughts on it with some straight talk. Straight talk, wireless, no contracts, no compromise. But I'm going to give you the straight talk now. You guys know that I, uh, I've spent a lifetime before here as a musician. I am stoked. In just a couple of minutes, we're going to be joined by a music legend. Gladys Knight going to join us next. She's singing the national anthem this weekend at the All-Star Game. We'll get her thoughts on it, and you'll get to hear from a music icon next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. It fits on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. I'm Jason Fitz, flying solo tonight. Sarah getting some much-needed vacation. Now, you guys have known me for a while at ESPN, and most of you know that for years before this, I was a touring musician, and I'm proud of the life that I was able to live. But there are a few times that you, you look at it and say, holy cow, what's happening? This is one of them. When I got the note today that we had the chance to talk to our next guest, I got goosebumps. I got them now. I cannot wait to bring her in. The legend, the icon, Gladys Knight joins us now on the show. Gladys, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You're singing the national anthem this weekend uh, as part of the NBA All-Star Game festivities. And, of course, you have a cameo in Coming to America, the long-awaited sequel to the iconic comedy classic, which premieres exclusively tomorrow on Amazon Prime. So let's start with the national anthem. You've done this a bunch in your life. So what for you, when you go in to do yeah. the anthem, what's on your mind? Um. It's everything that I have lived through and looked forward to and a country that I am uh, a part of and all of those things and all of the people that I have come across that have lifted me up in this whole thing. I was just telling somebody, one of the guys, you know, they wanted to make it political. I said, you know what, I started work work in in, uh, first grade learning this song. And so I'm ready to sing it now, okay? <laughs> and it's not about that. It's about what's in your heart and what's in uh, your mind and what's going on socially and politically, I guess. You know, I try not to get too much into that because I have heart for, for people first, and then I have heart for our country and all of that kind of thing. So I am overjoyed. Uh, to be able to be called to do the national anthem, it's a it's a very important thing in our history, and people died and fought and did all of that for this country, and I think the the you know the song was so apropos, and I am just really overjoyed to be called to do it. When you've done it as many times and in many incredible ways as you have, do you make it different each time, or do you just get comfortable with the way that you love? Well, I I feel comfortable with it. Yes, I do. And I, I love the structure of it. I love the lyrics of it and, and all of those kinds of things. I don't try to deviate too far from the original because it has – so many things wrapped up in it when they first started to doing the national anthem. We didn't have one at one time, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> now I am just just really, really excited to be able to do it again. And uh, what it represents is something that we all should feel, should, should touch, should know, to understand, and all of those things. 
And if we pay attention, you know, music can change a whole lot of things and a whole lot of people. We're so talking to Gladys Knight on that's Spain. That's the way I feel about it, and I wanted to let them know by by being overjoyed that I'm I'm able and ready to do this. So I'm so excited, and then too, my friends that are that are on the teams, that matters to me too, because I'm I'm in a way, uh, you know, telling them thank you too and lifting them up for their great talents and all of those kinds of things. So um, I don't know. I get a chance to do that. So, Is there one know. of those performances it's, it's that really stands out to you? It's a wonderful, extraordinary invitation. Is there, is there one they performance that stands out? Is there one performance that stands out to you the most? As far as the national anthem is concerned? Sure, or just in your career. Every I mean, you've had time. such a storied career. I mean, is there one moment for you that stands out the most? <laughs> Well, yeah. Every time I get a chance to do music, I love music, and and I'm very particular usually about the lyrical content of it, you know. And the the songs that you guys have lifted us up with, and that you you pulled forward the things that you loved and that you liked. It was mostly the ones that I loved and I liked too, because I can't do anything that I I don't embrace or that I can't understand, or I can't feel in the depth of my soul or my heart. I just can't do it. So um, when I do a song, hopefully that's what you feel when you hear it. And so far, without you guys, I would not have had the kind of success that the music that I've done has had. So I'm thanking you guys as well. It, we're in a place where we need each other. And uh, I'm always got my, my knees is rusty when I pray. You know, <laughs> My knees are rusted when I pray. And my fingers are crossed that you will hear, you will feel, you will even learn some of the music. You know, I think about the, the movie that we were uh, doing now. And, and they choose the, the music very closely to what the actors and, and the scripts are about. And there again, I feel honored that I have been singing something that they can put to and, and uplift what they've written. That is amazing. That is wonderful. I'm, I'm just overjoyed that I could be a part of it in that way. We're talking to Gladys Knight on Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz here. And so, uh, Gladys, you, you mentioned sort of the career you've had. And it's interesting to me as a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame member, there are very few women compared uh, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How much different is it for t- in today's music business for women than it was when you were making your climb? Well, I, I didn't. Um, what's the word that I'm looking for? I didn't think that I would ever be in a situation like that. And to be honest with you. I do not perform or I do not sing for the the end to be the top drawer or a trophy or whatever. But I do do my my best. And and sometimes you're blessed enough for your best to be good enough. <laughs> and um I don't I don't know. I, I just feel like I'm connected to you guys. 
and I, I feel you. And when you, when you uplift me, it takes me to the level of where I should be. And um, I just don't play around with it. It's not about fame. Sometimes it's about fortune if you don't get paid. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, you know, I, I'm really grateful for the opportunities that I've had since I was four years old and uh, moving up the ladder. And it's not all the time an easy uh, situation. You know, when I did the anthem before, a lot of people were afraid, and I could see it in their faces, or when they would come down to say hello to me and shake my hand, they were saying, well, we don't know if you should do the anthem because there was a lot of stuff politically going on when I did the 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 song at the Super Bowl. But I just didn't let that take me over because we're talking about and singing about our country. And, yes, there are some difficult political things that go on in every walk of life in everywhere and that's not to say that they're the right things but when it comes down to singing something so positive as the national anthem we should all be grateful that we have the country that we have even with all the ups and downs you know we'll get there Gladys, I'm grateful that you gave us time today. I'm so I'm honored to get the opportunity to speak with you and just to get the opportunity to feel your presence for just a moment. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. It's Gladys Knight joining us on Spain and Fitz. I can't believe it. Can't believe we got to talk to her again. Don't miss it. The national anthem. She'll be singing it on Sunday's NBA All-Star Game. And check out Coming to America. It's the sequel uh, to the long-awaited sequel, I should say, to the iconic comedy classic. Premieres exclusively tomorrow on Amazon Prime. Just listening to her speak about what she cares about. Gosh, it just gives you goosebumps. I cannot wait to watch her be amazing, as she has been for generations uh, when she gets to do the anthem on Sunday. Gladys was brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Okay, we're going to get more driven back into the Steelers thing. Ben Roethlisberger is going to be back with the team for a year. I've said it just means that they'll have the worst quarterback in the division next year. We'll get some thoughts from one of our best insiders on all things Steelers. We'll do that next. Spain and Fitz hanging out with you on ESPN Radio. And as always, also hanging out with you on Sirius XM and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Presented by Progressive Insurance with insurance for cars, homes, boats, motorcycles, RVs, and commercial vehicles at 1-800-PROGRESSIVE and Progressive.com. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. All of our guests join us on the Goodyear Hotline. If you just missed Gladys Knight, I still can't believe I'm saying that. We just got to hang out with Gladys Knight. Uh, which was incredibly cool. Be sure to check out the Spain and Fitz podcast. We'll have it out there for you tonight. Uh, and let's keep the great guests coming and greatness from guests. Brooke Pryor joining us now. Brooke uh, obviously covers the Steelers for ESPN NFL Nation. Brooke, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate you hanging out with us, my friend. I, I've got people fired up. They're in my menchies. They're mad at me uh, because I started the show off by saying that Ben's going to be back with the Steelers, and that means they'll have the fourth-best quarterback in their division. I know that seems a little extreme, but Ben was not himself last year, right? So how much does that come into, did that come into the conversation between Ben and the Steelers as they tried to figure out what to do moving forward? Yeah, I'm sure it came into the conversation uh, quite a bit, although, you know, I'm sure that they had to 
say it delicately because you, you still, this is the guy who has been with the organization for 18 years. He won two Super Bowls. You can't flat out say, man, you can't play anymore because that's also not the case. I think that Ben Roethlisberger, even though the season ended the way that it did and he had some real clunkers of a game, you know, games like the first half against the Indianapolis Colts, the entire Bengals game, there were some bad moments and he didn't look like himself at times. But I do think that there's still something up in the tank, at least as far as the elbow goes, because his average air yards per attempt actually went up two yards in the last I mean, three games of the season. That's an encouraging sign that he can still throw the ball down the field. He needs a, 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 refreshed, uh, a, re- a refreshed scheme, which I think he'll get that with Matt Canada. But the biggest issue to me is the mobility, um, and they need to revamp that offensive line. Uh, given that Marquise Pouncey is retired, they just signed J.C. Hassenauer to a one-year deal uh, center who will kick in for that starting job, but they're probably going to have to replace Alejandro Villanueva in free agency. They've got some things to do to make Ben as successful as he can be in the 2021 season. Well, and Brooke, everything you're saying makes a lot of sense. It's just we've gone from a conversation about what we were used to for Ben for a generation where, frankly, it didn't matter who was with him. He made everybody around him better, and they were going to be good because of Ben to where we are now. I mean, it seems like a stretch for me to look at most teams saying that when they go up against Ben, and at this point they're saying, oh, my God, well, we can't beat Ben. I mean, that's a that's just a different tone, and the Steelers need to put pieces around him to that point. They don't have a lot of salary cap room. So how are they going to put the pieces around him that he'll need to be as successful as he can be? Right. That was kind of the crux of the whole negotiation with Ben, was trying to figure out how can we you know, give him one more year but also make sure that it's a year that we're contending. And honestly, like any money that they gave Ben takes away from them being able to contend. And you know, he does end up reducing his pay by five million dollars. It's he uh, reduces his cap hit by fifteen million, and that's great. But that's not going to pay Juju Smith-Schuster. He's still probably gone in free agency because the move with Ben really just brings them under the cap so they can be cap compliant when the league year opens. But it still doesn't give them much wiggle room. So. They're going to have to find guys to put around Ben through the draft. Um, I would expect them to take a tackle fairly early, maybe a center. Um, And then I think they're going to have to go bargain hunting. They're going to have to look for guys like Ray Ray McLeod, who was with the team last year, um, who is a restricted free agent. Uh, Guys kind of of that caliber that are under the radar that, you know, will be cheaper than trying to bring back Juju Smith-Schuster, but – they're really going to have to go bargain hunting to put guys around Ben uh, for the upcoming season. But this isn't a team that does a rebuild uh, ever and bringing Ben back signals that they still very much believe that his championship window is open, but winning that and trying to get to a Super Bowl when they couldn't do it last year with Bud Dupree and Juju Smith-Schuster and, and all of those guys has become so much harder when you're trying to find kind of cheaper replacements for those guys. We're talking to Brooke Pryor, covers the Steelers for ESPN NFL Nation on Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio. I'm Jason Fitz. And, you know, it, it feels in some ways, Brooke, like you're almost trying to plug a, a large hole with a small Band-Aid because even if this works for one year, it still begs the question of what are the Steelers doing uh, to, to figure out their quarterback position moving forward. If they need to put these assets around Ben, then they can't spend draft assets on a quarterback, and this is a weird quarterback draft based on where they pick anyway. So what prevents them from being in this exact same situation a year from now? Right, that's the thing, and it could be an even worse situation because Mason Rudolph will be an unrestricted free agent at the end of the year. Same thing with Dwayne Haskins. Um, 
that leaves them with no quarterbacks under contract for the 2022 season. And that's a problem. Um, and because of that, I kind of expect them to take a guy, maybe mid-late round, a guy like a Jamie Newman, maybe a Kellen Mond, somewhere in that range. So at you know worst-case scenario, you have a backup while you're looking to sign a mid-level vet. The good news is, though, that this, this time a year from now, the, the salary cap should go back up. They should have a little bit more money. Ben's contract will be almost off the books. I think it's still about a $10 million dead cap hit um, with those voidable years and everything. But they will have more flexibility next year to bring in a guy. Or if the season does not go the way that they hope, maybe their draft pick's a little bit higher and they can you know, get a guy like Sam Howe. But, I mean, it's, I think it's really tough when you're bringing Ben back because you're losing a season where you could evaluate Mason Rudolph or evaluate Dwayne Haskins in some game-like situations. Instead, you're going to have to hope that the preseason comes back so you can evaluate them there and that maybe, you know, you're up by so much you can get them in mop-up duty at the end. But I think it really handicaps their ability to evaluate what they have on the roster right now, and that's going to be a problem going forward. Well, the other part of it, Brooke, so often as we talk about quarterbacks at that stage in their career being essentially mentors, what's Ben's level of interest in helping the guys that are in that room grow to eventually replace him? Yeah, I mean, I, I think initially I know that there was some friction between Ben Roethlisberger and Mason Rudolph when Mason got drafted. Ben didn't think that, that they should have spent those resources on drafting a quarterback. I do think that he's grown in a lot of ways since then. Um, the the 2019 season when he was on the sideline, I know he kind of helped out Mason a little bit. And then last year, the, his emphasis, he talked a lot about wanting to be a leader, helping out the wide receivers, kind of being more present with the quarterbacks. And I think that they have a better working relationship than they did when Mason was drafted. But it's not an Alex Smith situation where he is, you know, putting in his all to, to groom, you know, Patrick Mahomes, that kind of thing. So I think that, that it's good that he is in this position now. He, he's maybe more open-minded to mentor some of these guys than he would have been earlier. But I think the, the bigger key here is that Mason Rudolph had Matt Canada for a year as a dedicated quarterbacks coach. And more importantly, now they have Mike Sullivan in who coached Eli, uh, Eli Manning in New York. Um, they have him as a dedicated quarterbacks coach. That's going to be the most important person in evaluating and developing Mason Rudolph and Dwayne Haskins and any other young quarterback that they may bring in. You guys can follow her on Twitter at B.E. Pryor and obviously check out all of her reporting on the Steelers for ESPN NFL Nation. Brooke, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. We always appreciate you, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Nope. So it's, this is what's interesting to me, guys, because I'm seeing the tweets and the Instagram comments and everybody's saying that I'm in here hating on Ben and hating on the Steelers. No, I'm indifferent towards the Steelers and I'm indifferent towards Ben. I don't really care if it works out one way or the other. I'm a Raiders fan. So uh, whether or not the Steelers are any good, it, it does not matter to me. Realistically, I'm just not looking at anything he's ever accomplished in the past. I'm only looking at who Ben is today. And what you just heard Brooks say is that they don't have an answer at the quarterback. They're not going to be able to draft an answer at the quarterback right now. And they're going to have to use the things that they have now, the draft pieces that they'll have coming in and the free agency moments that they have coming in to put the necessary pieces around Ben to help him compete at the highest possible level. This Steelers team feels like, to me, they're, they're poised to take a step back. That's just my logic working here. There's no hate. There's no love. There's no, it's indifference. 
But Indifference says this dealer's team is set to take a step back. And then after they take a step back, it won't be a far enough step that puts them into the draft where they can get the quarterback answer they need next year. And it certainly won't give them any easier solution. So all they're doing is temporarily delaying the inevitable inevitable quarterback situation they are going to have, all just to try and keep things afloat for one year. I mean, I'm not going to put the Steelers ahead of the Chiefs at this point, are you? Just be real. Are you going to put the Steelers as the best team in the AFC? I don't know that we can even put the Steelers as the best team in their division with everything that they are poised to lose and with the salary cap issues that they will have. I don't think it's fair to say that the Steelers are just going to come in and run over everybody in their division. They've got a lot of things that need to be fixed. And in order to fix those, they're going to have to get a lot of answers. Answers that are tough to get. And in the meantime, they're going back to it. They're going to run it back with this same quarterback and this same situation and hope for a different result. I think the only thing that's going to be different is next season they won't find a Band-Aid and then they're going to have to do a complete rebuild to figure out what the heck they're doing at the most important position in all of sports. Spain and Fitch, you guys can disagree with me, by the way. 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. You can also tweet me, at Jason Fitz. I'm thick-skinned. You guys can come at me. Steelers fans, I know you're mad. It's okay. We'll get through it together. In the meantime, everybody's mad about one thing from the NBA last night. We'll tell you about it, and I'll tell you why maybe I'm giving it a little bit more happiness than you are. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Every single sport, every single year, has one story that dominates. And it's just become the easy thing for all of us to fall on. It's officiating. And last night, it was as bad as ever, as vocally as ever in the NBA. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests appear on the Goodyear Hotline. If you missed it earlier, Gladys Knight, the Gladys Knight, joined the show. You can check that out on the Spain and Fitz podcast, wherever you get your podcast. It'll be up shortly after the show. Now, last night, uh, the Utah Jazz were in action, and they were not pleased with the way the officiating went throughout the course of the game. Their stars have been very, very vocal about it, which is always an interesting moment. When stars come out and speak about the officiating in general, they're acknowledging the fact that they're just going to give up money. It matters to them that much because, realistically, they're going to be fined right away. And we hear this a lot, but when you hear it from certain stars, it at least opens your ears a little bit. And this that's why I think so many of us uh, we're interested last night when Donovan Mitchell, who just continues to grow as a name everybody loves to pay attention to, held no words back when he was talking about the officials after the game in his post-game press conference. This is what he said. Tough to, to go out there and see how we fight and compete and to have a game like that taken from us. And I'm never, ever one to, to blame a ref, to blame an official. I could say I, we could have done more, but this is getting out of hand. You know, there have been games like this that we've won. There have been games like this that we've lost. But this whole refereeing stuff and the way we're, we're nice we don't complain. We don't like. We don't get frustrated. You know, we fight through things. And the fact that we just continually get screwed in a way by this, you know, like we we won this game, in my personal opinion, you know. But like I said, I'm gonna give them credit. They won, whatever, cool. But like this is it's it's a consistent thing, and you know the question is, can we can we do it? Can we sustain it? Are we for real number one? Like yeah, the hell we are. And it's getting it's getting ridiculous, KK. That this is this is what's happening. So there are a lot of layers to this. Number one. When a player speaks out at this level, partially what they're trying to do is change a little bit of what's happening or what's about to happen. You put sort of plant the seed. Hey, we're not getting the calls. Hoping that on a very human level, officials will look around and say, huh, well, maybe there's something wrong. I can't find any metric that really supports there is something wrong. I went to our great people at Stats and Info and asked specifically if there are any metrics that support that the Jazz aren't getting enough calls. 
The answer is tricky, but the best way I can explain it is this. So far this season, the Jazz ranked 17th in free throw attempt rate, which is free throw attempts divided by field goal attempts. So 17th. They're right around the middle of the pack in how many free throw attempts they get compared to how many field goals they're putting up. The problem is there's also another metric that you can look at and say, okay, uh, they have the second most drives this season. That means they've gone to the rim the second most times behind only the Thunder. But they rank 24th in percentage of time drawing a foul on those drives. So when they drive, they're not getting the calls. Now, why? I mean, there's no one proven metric that shows anything about why uh, they, they are in that situation. You know, and, and you can even go a step farther. Let's talk about clutch time because everybody wants to talk about at the end of the game, what do officials do at clutch time? Well, clutch time, which by the NBA rule is the final five minutes with a score within five points in that metric. The Jazz ranked 22nd in free throw attempts this year. 22nd. Now, all of a sudden, you are just going to yell and scream about that. Well, the team that ranks last are the Lakers. The 76ers rank first. There's no one metric that shows you who is or isn't getting calls. The one thing I know is that the NBA has gone out and done the thing that I demand. They've given us transparency. The two-minute report means something. The NBA is the only league out of our professional sports leagues that stands up and puts out a report every stinking day saying, here's what we got right, here's what we got wrong. And we still don't want to buy it? Like, what are we asking for? If the league is giving us the actual grades, and this is what I've always asked the NFL to do, don't just tell me that it's the best officiating crew. Show me the grades. Show me the metrics. Show me everything I need to know about every official for every game so I know what level of accuracy they get. That, to me, is transparency. That's also exactly what the NBA is doing. So, to that end, Kendrick Perkins, ESPN NBA analyst, was on Shanae and Golik Jr. earlier, and he had harsh words for the NBA refs and the way they approach it, their feelings. I think the referees need to have, you know, some type of guidelines where they get penalized, and they can't be sensitive to things. Montrez Harrell got a tech last night for screaming and one. I think Adam Silver and the NBA need to address it. Because refs are being too sensitive. I can understand if someone just keeps going or they may charge you up and or, or you know, uh, you know, or it's a fight or something to that nature. Then yep. yeah, it may deserve an ejection. But guys doing a little lip boxing, like you gotta let that go. People are not paying their hard earned money to first to one go to games now that we could go. Two, to watch the games, they don't wanna watch the refs. Like you cannot be kicking out stars. Now, let me be clear. Uh, Kendrick Perkins uh, always has great takes. I, I love working with K-Perk. There is a moment here where I, I agree with a lot of what he said. You know, People don't go to the games to watch stars get kicked out. That being said, people go to games to watch consistency. So all I ever ask from an NBA official is that they treat every single person on every single team the same. I don't want them to treat stars any differently. If they're going to be quick to kick somebody out uh, for that's on a no-name team, then they need to be quick to kick out LeBron and AD also. We know that that's not the world that we live in, but that's the world I want to live in. I mean, what are we asking for? Are we asking for the NBA officials to stay out of the game and call games more loosely? Are we asking the NBA officials to call games differently in the last five minutes of the game than they do the rest of the game? That seems absurd to me. Are we asking for the officials to come out and tell us exactly what they're doing and why? Those are the things that make sense. I mean, what we should want from the NBA is not less calls from the officials. We should want absolute accuracy from the officials. So, you want less fouls, foul less. I mean, we, we put all the blame on the officials without acknowledging at some level it is the players that are responsible for playing clean basketball. Now, does that mean that NBA officials uh, can, can be at times too sensitive? Yeah. 
I mean, I agree with Perkins completely when he talks about you can't just tee up somebody for yelling. You got to have a little bit thicker skin. But at the same point, Brian Windhorst, ESPN NBA insider, was on Barton Hahn earlier today, and he talked about the specific reason why refs might be quick to call technicals. The thing that's going on with the officials right now that's so wild is that these NBA players are under these preposterous protocols. The officials are out there flying commercial. <laughs> you know, they're not wearing masks around the court. The coaches, you know, the coaches, uh, there was a report wow. yesterday that essentially blamed the Raptors coaches for the team being shut down for a couple of games because they, they weren't following the mask protocols. What about the officials? I mean, I, I say that I care about them. I don't want them to get sick. You know, it's just an ebb and flow type situation. And, you know, if there's, if there's more text being called, then you got to adjust your game. At some point, you have to look at it. And the last line of what he just said there, if there's more text being called, then you got to adjust your game. I'll say the same thing I said after the Super Bowl for everybody that was up in arms about the penalties and the way they were being called. I was working with Kirk Morrison on ESPN Radio after the game, and he said most coaching staffs give you a report going into a game that shows you exactly what an official calls, what this crew does, what they look for, what their, what their penalty rate is compared to everybody else, so you know. You know coming in, hey, they call holding a lot, so we got to be careful about that. That's no different here. They know in the NBA which group of officials is working a game. If there are groups of officials that seem to be too sensitive, then they know that going in. At some point, everybody's got to adjust. The players have to adjust and the officials have to adjust. Yeah, officials need to have thicker skin. Yeah, if officials are really calling fouls because they're mad about the fact that they fly commercial, that's a problem. But if it's just officials doing their job, which is what the two-minute report flatly lines out for us, who got the calls right, who got the calls wrong? We get that so transparently. I have no problem with it. The problem here is communication. The players and the officials need to sit down and talk about talking because these are empty arenas mostly or limited fans. So the the refs are hearing things that they don't usually hear. They're hearing everything at a louder level. And they know everybody else in the room is feeling it too. You hear it. If everybody else hears what that player just said to you and it hits you harder, you're going to be more sensitive. That's human nature. The, The solution here is simple. Refs and players need to sit down and have open communication about what should be allowed in open communication within a game. Until they do that, until they start talking to each other instead of talking to the press, nothing's going to be fixed. Coming up next, a huge story breaking out of LSU with Les Miles. We'll get into it with all the details. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Shocking allegations against... Former LSU head coach Les Miles from all the way back in 2013 are starting to become public. It's a stunning read, and what's it mean for the coach, the university, and everybody involved? Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Jason Fitz flying solo. We're going to get to that in just a minute. We'll get an expert to join us. Uh, we're presented by Progressive Insurance, and all of our guests appear on the Goodyear Hotline, ESPN Radio, presented by Progressive Insurance. Drivers who save with Progressive save over $750 on average, before we get into the Les Miles story, I'll remind you that uh, I'm not a, uh, at this point, the Twitter and Instagram are going nuts. Apparently, I have offended the entire Steeler Nation. 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. In about 10 minutes, we'll take your calls. Tell me why I'm wrong. I'm just saying that Big Ben coming back to quarterback uh, the Steelers this year on a renegotiated deal, which is the big news of today, is great. That's fine. If you want him to get a retirement uh, plan where he goes around and gets to give everybody the hurrah, that's awesome. I just don't care what he did in the past if I'm having to answer what he will do today. And what he's going to do this coming year is be uh, arguably the worst quarterback in his division, maybe third. 
Maybe third, fine. Maybe we don't know who Burrow's going to be, how that hell's going to be. But I, I don't think that I'm doing cartwheels, no matter what the past is, about the present of Big Ben and the present uh, presence of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Triple eight, say ESPN, 888-729-3776. We'll let you guys get in on the conversation in just a few minutes. Tell me why I'm wrong. I'll take all of the beating you could possibly give me. In the meantime, massive story coming out of college football around LSU, and we're going to head over to the Goodyear Hotline where we're joined by Andrea Gallo of The Advocate. Uh, Andrea, first and foremost, thanks for coming on the show and great work by you guys uh, on this story. I've worked a lot in college football, and I had no idea this was out there. I mean, this just feels like this got buried, and this is uh, investigations from 2013 over allegations that Les Miles, then the coach of LSU, sexually harassed students. How have they managed to keep a story like this so quiet for so long? Well, thank you so much for having me. I think that that is the key question that so many of us have, so many people in Baton Rouge, so many people around LSU. Um, I The basic answer is that when you look at these documents um, between Taylor Porter, who's the law firm who commissioned this investigation, LSU, and Les Miles, there was a very concerted effort to keep this investigation as quiet as possible. There are all sorts of stipulations in the investigation about never releasing it to the public, about ways that they would communicate with each other to bypass public records laws, which LSU is subject to as a public university. And so there was certainly a lot of effort put into keeping this covered up. Do we have any indication of why? Uh, that's a great question. I guess that you would have to ask that to Les Miles or the people who commissioned this investigation. I think that oftentimes people who are the subject of sexual harassment allegations want to keep those out of the public eye. And Les Miles certainly succeeded for several years on that front. We're talking to Andrea Gallo of The Advocate. You can check out the article of several articles out there. A lot of great writing on uh, LSU head coach Les Miles and the investigation over 2013 uh, allegations that he sexually harassed students. Uh, One thing that was of interest to me when I was reading through some of your reporting is how much of the reports are redacted, which is, you know, makes sense in these situations. But is there any indication of if or when or how that information could be uh, unredacted, if that's a word, how we can make that public? Sure. So uh, a judge in Baton Rouge has actually had this investigation for a few weeks now. And the judge, along with attorneys for USA Today, who sued to get a copy of it and Les Miles' attorneys and LSU attorneys, have all been kind of sorting out what aspects of this can be made public and which aspects cannot. Um, They say that the redactions currently in the report are meant to protect the confidentiality of the female students who came forward with complaints about Les Miles. So it's unclear if we'll get any um, less redactions than we currently have. But even with the redactions in place, we still have a much fuller picture of the allegations against Les Miles than we ever had before. Well, with those allegations, uh, the investigation shows he's been accused of kissing a female student twice, unwanted touching, telling her he was attracted to her and suggesting that they go to a hotel or to his condo together. Some of the allegations explored in the document remain secret. So 
at this point, when we've got sort of a publicly, many people will say he said, she said, some things haven't been proven at this point. Like, How much concrete information do we feel like we can actually get through this investigation? Sure. I think it's important to remember that LSU hired a sexual harassment attorney to get to the bottom of this in 2013. It's her investigation that we're finally getting this public information from. And she and the LSU decision makers at the time determined that these allegations were credible enough that there were some serious consequences for Les Miles. He was ordered to go to counseling He was ordered to stay away from any student interns or students in general on LSU's campus. He was ordered to stop personally texting, emailing, Facebook messaging students at the time. So they clearly found enough merit in these investigations to act at least slightly on them um, because they were willing to discipline Les Miles in, in some sort of fashion. We're talking to Andrea Gallo of The Advocate on Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. And that's part of what's really interesting to me, Andrea, is that I can see why Les Miles wants to keep this quiet, obviously. We, we can all see that. And I'm not sure even what recourse there will be for, for Les, who's now moved on from LSU. But where's the advantage for LSU? I mean, it, it, at this point, the, the egg on their face for burying this is absolutely incredible. Is there some recourse to them for trying to bypass the the laws and trying to bypass the the public information? Well, we expect to get quite a bit more detail out of LSU tomorrow on this very topic, actually, because LSU has commissioned an investigation that's been happening over the past few months about how they've handled past allegations of sexual assault, domestic violence, those sorts of things on campus. And that report is going to be released to the public tomorrow. And we expect that that report will have more details about Les Miles, as well as several other cases um, involving athletes and non-athletes on LSU's campus and how they've been handled. So we'll just have to wait until tomorrow to, to really know kind of how LSU comes out looking in all of this. But at some point, I mean, tell me if I'm too cynical here, but they commission an investigation and then they essentially hide all of the results from it. We wait eight years to find out. And now they've commissioned in another investigation. Like, forgive me for not suddenly thinking that this is a transparent process, no matter how many investigations they they commission. Right. You're right. I think transparent is the exact opposite of what LSU has been when it comes to this. I mean, As you pointed out, this Les Miles investigation goes back to 2013. And I think that there's a really strong argument to be made that if LSU found that Les Miles could not be alone with female students following their investigation in 2013, shouldn't students on LSU's campus have known about that? I mean, did they feel like female students were safe being in the presence of Les Miles if they ordered him to stay away from them? Why was it him and a few board members who got this directive, but not the actual campus, not the students, the faculty, the staff, and at the end of the day, the taxpayers who pay for LSU to exist because it is a public university? That's the the most shocking part of all of this is that everybody it seems involved just thought that they could somehow bury it and it would never come out. I just, I don't understand this at all. Andrea, great work by you. We really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for the information and the insight. We appreciate it so much.
Thank you for having me. You guys can check out the work there on theadvocate.com. Uh, some great articles on it. There's several on it. Take the time to read it because uh, there's a lot of shocking information in there, a lot of shocking allegations in there. And when you think about what LSU has done to go out of their way to make sure that that information didn't become public. Again, I can see why Les Miles doesn't want it to become public. But if you're LSU, man, you are rolling the dice that you are putting your hand in the cookie jar in a way that you're going to get caught. And that's exactly what's happened. And now tomorrow, they'll speak about their investigations, about the culture that's created. I wonder how honest we're supposed to think they're being when they've been lying to us about this for this long. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. Ben's coming back, and I don't think it's going to make the Steelers any better. I also think he's going to be the fourth best quarterback in his own division. Steelers fans, you're mad at me, so this is your chance. Instead of tweeting me or subtweeting me, come at me. 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. We'll hear from angry Steelers fans. See if you guys can change my mind. I'm open to listening. And I'll also tell you what some of our experts say next for Pittsburgh. We'll do all of that next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. I got Steelers fans fired up. They're all up in my menchies. Now you can get on the line. Let's battle it out. Triple eight, say ESPN eight 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 seven two nine three seven seven six. Big Ben is coming back on a one year deal for the Steelers, and to that I say, okay, meh. Still not going to be a great uh, quarterback in that division. In fact, I would say that there's a really good shot that a year from now, he's the fourth best quarterback in that division. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. And you guys can hop on the Goodyear hotline. Like I said, 888-SAY-ESPN, 888-729-3776. Again, uh, like I've got a friend, uh, a buddy in Nashville, Steve. And Steve, hi, Steve. You uh, used to always say that, you know, some people have resting angry face. Some people have resting excited face. He always used to say that I have resting disinterested face because, you know, I could be sitting there doing the most exciting story you've ever told in your life. And I've got sort of a meh about it. That's how I am about the Steelers. Meh. I don't love or hate the team either way. I don't really care if they win games. I'm a Raiders fan. I'm a 43-year-old Raiders fan. So the whole like Steelers-Raiders rivalry from the generation before me, I don't care about that. I don't care about that at all. I don't care if the Steelers are good. I got no dog in this fight. I just don't think Ben's great, and I don't think the Steelers are going to be great with him. Skip in Illinois. Tell me I'm wrong. Thanks for calling the show, man. What do you got? All right, man. Thanks for taking my call. First of all, all right, I'm surprised it took all these teams 12 games to figure out the Steelers didn't have a run game. You tell me one of them other quarterbacks that you're talking about in, in his division that could survive without a run game. All right, you can't throw the ball fifty times, and especially an older quarterback. Big Ben has got another year, and I agree, it's that's about maximum. I get that, but the Steelers got to develop a run game around him, as in any other team would have to. Well, Skip, thanks for the call, man. But uh, I will say this: the metrics bore out the opposite with Joe Burrow early on. No quarterback had ever thrown the ball more than Joe Burrow did as a rookie than Joe Burrow did, and no quarterback in the NFL was throwing with a higher percentage than Joe Burrow was. Now, the Bengals stink, but that's not it wasn't Joe Burrow. The offensive line stinks, you know? So, uh, yes, a lack of a run game is absolutely an issue for some quarterbacks. But, I mean, are we really looking at Arizona saying, oh, the key to Kyler Murray is that we need a good run game? In fact, Lamar Jackson helps create the run game in Baltimore. So, I mean, I, I hear your point, but that doesn't change the fact that, okay, great. I don't know where you think you're going to suddenly get a run game, but you get a run game. Then what? You think that that's going to be – like, that's not putting it on Ben – that's not asking Ben to be the savior on it. Chad in Denver. Chad, what do you got, man? Absolutely. Appreciate you having me. Be in Nashville here in a month. 
hopefully you got some connections in the area. I could throw your name around. Just a little disappointed that Burrow is already slotted into the three spot in the division, no matter what. All dependent on the O-line. You think he can't be better than Baker next year? No, I think Joe Burrow not only could end up – if that offensive line – thanks for the call, Chad. If that offensive line is good, Burrow's going to be the best quarterback in that division. I I think Burrow has a shot at being a top-five guy in the NFL. I I am a massive, massive fan of Joe Burrow. And this comes down to – I was just stunned. I I was stunned standing on the sideline watching what he did – in that senior season, and I know we've all talked about it a bunch in his last season, I should say, at LSU. I know we've talked about it a, a bunch on uh, how he played, and I know it's only the college level, blah, 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 blah. No. I mean, you are looking at a, a Bengals team that did not give him any help, and he still went out there and just wowed everybody. I think that Burrow has the opportunity to be an absolute transcendent talent if he can come back healthy. So uh, by the end of this year, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Burrow was standing at the second-best quarterback in that division. Joel, in Dayton, Ohio, what do you got, man? Thanks for calling the show. Hey, man, yeah, thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, so kind of going off of what the uh, first caller said, I'm talking about the Steelers' run game not being good, and kind of going off of what you said with Ben not being, uh, I guess Ben not making the Steelers better with him being there. Um, but I guess my point is I don't think the Steelers will be worse with Ben being there. So, yeah, I guess what do you think the, the better alternative would be, I guess, other than Ben, if you say they're not going to be any better? That's a really good question, and thanks for the call. Like, I really that's that's great pushback, man. Because you're right, there aren't a lot of great options. I think it's it's funny that we've all talked about the quarterback carousel and what it's going to mean this year for change, and all of these guys are going to go all over the place. And now, what are we seeing? I mean, it may not be that at all, right? And so, if we agree that the Steelers were not likely ever in the sweepstakes for, let's say, a Deshaun Watson, they wouldn't have the money anyway if they tried to get some of those things done. I think, honestly, the best situation for them was to see if they've got anything in Mason Rudolph or Dwayne Haskins that's worth keeping. And we, I think we all know the answer to that, but at least try. I mean, if the, if the real strategy this year is let's get the right weapons, improve the offensive line and improve the running game well you could do that around any quarterback and at least get yourself a situation where if it doesn't work you're going to be dreadful and maybe you'll have a top 10 pick next year in the draft and if it does work you might find out that you got a young quarterback you can build around so at this point there isn't an easier option I just think they're going to be playing this all over again uh, in a year Jay in Reno Jay what you got man thanks for calling the show this is a financial move and a financial move only and what I mean by that they save $15 million on the cap. It allows them to re-sign Schuster and also forces them now to obviously draw, uh, draft a, first, a quarterback in the first round. They have to. They have no choice at this point. Being a long-time Steeler fan like I am, that's the move they're going to make. Plus the fact they could even make a, do a sign-and-trade for Schuster and or Bud Dupree and get another number one pick. Well, that's a good call. And look, I don't disagree with you on the financial part of it because uh, the only thing I would say is that when you start to look at the draft specifically, I mean, if if the answer answer is that you're going to draft a quarterback, I, man, at 24 in the first round of the draft, there's not going to be somebody there for you that's worth taking. I, I, this draft quarterback class, uh, you've got one person, Trevor Lawrence, that is absolutely epic. Everybody else you can ask a question about. Now, Justin Fields has a lot to to look forward to, but there are some questions. Zach Wilson is somebody that I know everybody's falling in love with today in this moment, but realistically, all three of them are going to be gone by, what, pick six maybe? And then you've got Mac Jones. Like Mac isn't going to make it to 24 in the first round. 
Your best case scenario is to get the fifth or sixth best guy in there. Now, if you think you can do a sign-in trade to get somebody else to come in, maybe that's a possibility, but that's a stretch anywhere you want to look at it. That's part of the problem that the Steelers have right now. Part of the problem is that they don't have an easy solution because they didn't plan ahead. I keep saying this. Boy, we spent a lot of time trashing the Packers for going out and drafting a quarterback when, what do you know, at least they got a backup plan for what they think they can do in the future at the quarterback position. I mean, right now, you can look at the, at the Steelers, you can look at the Saints and say, wow, both of those teams probably wish they had a set solution on what was next for them, and they don't. The, the Steelers, you're right if they want to try and draft somebody at 24, but also remember the stat that I've been saying over and over and over again, thanks to Field Yates. From 2009 to 2016, zero out of 22 first-round quarterbacks selected, zero, are still with their team today over that entire period. So if you think you're getting the quarterback that you want at 24 in this year's draft, man, you are absolutely rolling the dice and you are begging for it to come up right. You might. You might, but it will be because you got lucky, not because you got good. Anybody picking a quarterback at 24 that turns out to be that good, man, it was lucky. Because if anybody had seen it coming, they wouldn't have made it that far. That's just the way the, the, the draft works. All right, we've been talking a lot about the Steelers. Coming up next, we'll get to one of my favorite experts on everything that's going on in the NBA. What's wrong with officiating? We'll find out from an expert next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. I'm Jason Fitz, flying solo tonight. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests appear on the Goodyear hotline. Don't forget the college basketball season's heating up. That means the Wendy's Wooden Watch has begun. Go to ESPN.com and search Wooden Watch for the list of Wooden Award late season top 20 nominees to watch as this season rolls on. That's all the John R. Wooden Award presented by Wendy's. Uh, by the way, you can also check out Countdown to Game Day before the college basketball game day every Saturday, 10.30 a.m. I'm hanging out on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, all the D- ESPN digital platforms with Christine Williamson, and we talk about Frosties and Fries. So uh, let's get to Frosties, Fries, and the NBA with one of my favorites, ESPN NBA writer Royce Young joins us on the Goodyear Hotline. Royce, let's start with the important thing. Do you dip fries in a frosty for you, or do you eat them separate? 100%. I mean, I mean, if I'm being completely honest, I'm a, fr- I'm a fries and ketchup truth or through and through but fries and a frosty fries and a milkshake that's that's big time that's a big time play see i'm with you on the fries and ketchup i don't usually commingle my sweets and my salties like they they, they have very they're compartmentalized for me no no surprise really? to most people i eat Man. like a child so i keep everything sort of in separate <laughs> like, i don't like my food to touch royce if i can avoid it so you know i got like fair french enough, fries and enough. then frosty you know it's, it's very very plain. I know the world is riveted by this conversation, so maybe we'll talk mm-hmm. about officials. Uh, at this point, frosty relationship between players and officials. See what I did there? Nice. So uh, nice. is there Very something nice. wrong with officiating this year in your mind in the NBA? No, I don't think so. I mean, look, I think we go through this sort of thing fits a lot where, you know, players will speak out, players will grow frustrated, and just kind of the system itself lends to these types of frustrations where you know officials obviously have the authority on the court, they can dole out technical fouls, call the game as they see it, and you know one of the things, and this is just the the nature of of the system that we have, is you know there's no like public accountability for officiating. They don't sit there and they don't have a a, a post game press conference talking about the calls that they may have gotten right or may have gotten wrong. Um, we do the the whole pool report thing, but it's kind of just kind of a, a dog and pony show. It really doesn't ever answer anything, but. The, the 
that's not to say that there's not accountability for officiating. They have a very thorough internal review process that's where they scale officials. They get essentially they get rewards based on their performance and how they grade out after games. So, but but I think just between the relationship of the players and the officials, it just kind of builds this tension. You know, and, you know one of the things I think fits that has not been healthy for for the relationship of players and officials has been the two-minute report. I, I know the league has tried to use that as transparency and to try to demonstrate um, exactly what's going on and, and how their review process works. But I think that that sort of thing just kind of builds in a little bit more animosity where that transparency kind of rings hollow for a lot of players and franchises when you know a report comes out the next morning that says that they got the call right or they got the call wrong. It can kind of build up these inherent biases between, like, you could score them and say, well, you got six wrong for us, but three wrong for them. I just don't think that that's been a healthy thing for the league. And that's interesting, Royce, because earlier I was saying that the two-minute report is at least an attempt at transparency. So if that's not mm-hmm. healthy, what would be a healthy way for all of this to be resolved? You know, I I don't know that they're – I mean, you're talking about like a tale as old as time, right? Like people right. people get mad at refs. Like that's just the way it's going to be in all sports, whether that's professional sports, whether that's your peewee leagues. I mean, you're going to have moms and dads yelling at uh, officials over anything. So I don't think that it's anything that could ever necessarily be solved. Look, I, I've, I, I know um, Monty McCutcheon, who is um, in charge of the NBA's officiating program, I, he's one of the all-time greatest refs ever. He's immensely respected. I've had multiple conversations with him. And the fact of the matter is, Fitz, is that they truly try to do their absolute best job to officiate a very difficult sport. Because, like, a story I just wrote was about how players use what some people might call savvy or clever. Some people might call, uh, like, borderline um, annoying type of moves to try to trick officials. And, that I mean, that's, that's the, the game that the officials are up against. You've got guys out there like Trey Young and James Harden bending rules to try to get calls. And then we have this expectation that the officials are going to get every call possible right, when the players themselves are trying to trick them. So, like, you know, there's, there's not some accountability there for the players, too, for trying to, to fool the officials. Then I don't think we can just put all the blame on the refs. We're talking to ESPN NBA writer Royce Young on Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz. I love what you just pointed out there because we've talked a lot about the, the flopping or even LeBron's body movements. I get all of that. Do you see a world where they could ever look at like soccer, which is, you know, finally reached a spot where they penalize people for flopping? Like, is that in the future of the NBA in your mind? Well, the NBA, I mean, they, they instituted it a few years ago where they would warn players and then they would find players for egregious flops. Now, the thing about that was, Fitz, is that when it first happened four or five years ago, it was front and center. But, like, when's the last player that you heard about that's been fined for flopping, right? Like, it just – they have not really enforced it, and they, I think that they thought that they had kind of solved the issue. And really all they do is they, they um, discipline the ones that are immensely egregious that kind of go viral on social media. And unless that happens, like, there's, there's just not a lot, of, uh, a lot of focus on that. And so, like – you know, they, they can do those sorts of things. You know, I don't know if it's a yellow card system like they have in soccer where, you know, an official could say, I'm going to give you the foul instead of, you know, like a real-time penalty. I think that that would have a lot more impact. You know, I know that a lot of people believe that you dig into the pocketbooks of NBA players and you're going to get to the heart of the issue. But I think if you if you could figure out some sort of real-time punishment, and look, that puts the judgment on the officials, and that, you know, that creates even more controversy. But nobody wants to watch floppers. Nobody wants to watch that sort of thing. Um, it's not good for the game, and it's and, and it just makes it more difficult to officiate and create these sorts of issues that we're talking about right now. 
Well, you speak of things that nobody wants to watch. Everybody wants to watch Harden at this point. And the way he's playing, it's uh, it's electric for all of us. But a lot of people are trying to give it context. How should we consider mm-hmm. the way he left Houston versus how he's playing in Brooklyn? So when you look at the, the Harden experiment so far this year, how do you put it all into one sort of frame? Well, it started slowly because, you know, I think James Harden had to kind of find his way and find his role a little bit. And I do think that contextually fits – he has really risen in the last two to three weeks and kind of started putting his name out there in that MVP conversation, but that's coincided with Kevin Durant's hamstring injury, right? So like the, and this is how a lot of people always felt about the Nets after the trade happened is that any combination of those three players, when you would put, when you would reduce them down to a duo made incredible sense, Kyrie and KD, Kyrie and Harden, Harden and KD, that, that was going to always work. The, the duo element, the, the talent, the, the ball would, would work between them, the, the chemistry would be good. The trio element is the one that people have questions about, and we haven't seen that that much. So, like, back to Hardman and how well he's played, he's played so well over the last couple of weeks as a duo with Kyrie, and in some cases as a solo, which is obviously what he's very comfortable with. The question for a lot of people is, what does Harden look like when you put it all three together? Because there were games early on, and granted, it was early on, so they were kind of figuring things out, where you know Harden had a first quarter where he didn't attempt a shot. I think he had a game where he maybe scored 12 points in it early on. So like there were some bumpy patches there where Harden maybe got a little bit passive as he kind of fit in alongside him. So that's the thing I think a lot of people are wondering, is that when you put all three back together and play him heavy minutes, especially high-leverage postseason minutes, what does it look like at that point? Because we know James Harden, as a solo or even as a duo, like that dude is maybe the most difficult player to guard in the entire NBA. So, like, it, it shouldn't be all that surprising that he's been awesome so far in Brooklyn. So, I mean, stick there for a second, Royce. We bring in the trio element of this, and there's going to be the expectation right away. They've looked so good this, this far. There's going to be the expectation mm-hmm. that they are a championship-caliber team, that they make the finals. If they come in as a trio and it doesn't work, they don't get as far in the playoffs, how much will that suddenly dull this new level of height and shine on Harden? That, that's a great point, Fitz. And I think that, you know, we, we in the media, we as fans, we all love to assign blame to something if there's failure. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if Harden will be the one that necessarily shoulders it. He is kind of the easy, uh, low-hanging fruit to kind of direct that towards just because he's had high-profile playoff failures he has really just not shown up in high leverage games himself. Um, and, you know, depending on how this plays out and where Harden falls in it, and if he's kind of the odd man out in some of these situations where Kyrie and – because, look, Kyrie and KD, they, they assert themselves in games. There's no question about it. Like, they – Kevin Durant is going to score 30 points no matter who he plays with. You know, you, you could put him on any, any team with any set of players, and he's just going to score his 30. Kyrie has the ball naturally in his hands a lot. So does Harden – but Harden just kind of, I think, naturally is more uh, of, a, of a rhythm player that sort of likes to play alongside, especially when he's with stars. So, you know, whatever the issue may be for the Nets in the future, if they run into it, you know, their plan is for talent to win out, clearly. They have massive defi- defensive deficiencies, and that will probably be where they lose games fits is on the defensive end. But naturally, we're going to, you know, if they lose a, you know, a game six in the, in, in the postseason in the Eastern Conference Finals, and they lose it 144 to 141, we're going to focus on how they failed offensively. <laughs> We're going to talk about the possessions <laughs> that went bad. We're not going to talk about the fact that they gave up 144. God, you are so right about that. You can follow him on Twitter, at Royce Young. Love the insight, my friend. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Stay safe. Thanks for joining the show. You bet, Fitz. Thanks for having me, man.
you know, what Royce just said there about low-hanging fruit is true for the entire organization at this point when you talk about their three stars. I mean, at this point, I always say the NBA works best when they have heroes and villains. And we all know that the Nets, in the way that they've been covered so often, are our villains. If Harden forgets, as Sarah always says, how to basketball, then he'll be the blame for it. If Kyrie just has a Kyrie moment, even in front of a microphone, he'll get the blame. And obviously, if KD doesn't manage to get it one with this sort of a staff around him, a team around him, then it'll suddenly be, oh, see, told you, KD has to have all these legendary warriors to win a championship. Like, the number of people that are sitting back waiting for the opportunity to find blame for Brooklyn, if anything goes wrong, is actually going to be one of the funnier things to watch for throughout the course of the NBA playoffs. It's Spade and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Coming up, there's one Hall of Fame-level college basketball coach that I'm about to take to task. We'll do it next. Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Jason Fitz flying solo tonight. We've been having a lot of heated debate. want to say thanks. Love it when you guys call the show. Awesome, even when we disagree. Obviously, Big Ben signs a new contract, a a, a renegotiated contract that's going to keep him with the Steelers for a year. I've had some harsh things to say, but uh, realistically, the Steelers maybe, as one caller pointed out, maybe there isn't a better option. And there is at some point, well, I'm sure we'll get into this as we continue to look forward to the season of what we thought would be quarterback chaos. Y'all, we need to accept at some point, there's a real chance that Sam Darnold's back with the Jets and Derek Carr's back with the Raiders and... Ben Roethlisberger's back with the the Steelers, and before you know it, all of a sudden, what do you know? Deshaun Watson doesn't get his opportunity to go somewhere else, and he's back in Houston, and they just refranchise Dak, so he stays in Dallas. Like, it's not hard to put the dominoes together in a way that keeps everybody in one spot. So just be ready for it, I'm saying. And maybe, maybe coming back with Ben for another year was just the only realistic alternative. At some point, it's going to bite the Steelers in the butt, though, as an organization in my mind. We'll see when that happens. Obviously, also tonight, if you missed it, be sure to check out the Spain and Fitz podcast. Great, great interview with uh, absolute, absolute legend Gladys Knight. Really cool to talk to her about what the national anthem means to her and uh, her opportunities to sing it. I can't imagine singing it at the Super Bowl, and now she'll be singing it Sunday for the NBA All-Star Game. You don't want to miss that. Plus, Coming to America 2 debuts tomorrow, so check her out and that she's got a cameo in that that's going to be really cool i'm a little nervous i'll be i'll be honest i'm a little nervous about coming to america too just because the original is so iconic and means so much to so many of us uh it's it's going to be interesting to see you know a lot of pressure a lot of pressure when you follow that up that's all i'm saying spain and fitz there was one thing i got to get off my chest though and i realize that it's always dangerous whenever any anybody thinks you're coming after a legend and i don't want to do that but at the same time i want to speak my mind on a uh, an opinion that I hear a lot, and I hear it a lot not just geared towards me, but also geared to many of the women that work at ESPN and throughout the, the world of sports, and uh, frankly, many of the reporters that are out there working hard covering teams. This isn't about a media versus coach mentality. This is just about a mentality overall that exists that's flat out wrong. Jim Beheim is a Hall of Fame caliber coach for Syracuse, and I have nothing but respect for what he's built for Syracuse as a basketball program. That being said, even good people do dumb things. And in my mind, Jim Beheim did something dumb and petulant. He showed himself to be a child in his postgame press conference. Uh, for anybody that hasn't seen it, the athletic writer that covers Syracuse men's basketball had tweeted out some opinions about the player usages, saying essentially that Syracuse would have won a bunch more games if Beheim would have run with a different lineup. So, uh, even though that was tweeted and apparently he and the writer supposedly had already talked it out, Beheim in his post-game press conference, uh, decided that he was going to throw shade again when he said this. 
but, but, but if I had played Jesse and Kadari, we'd probably be 22 and 2 now. I just didn't see that. And I couldn't figure that out by myself after 45 years. I need a reporter to figure that out who's never played basketball and is 5 foot 2. Well, luckily for us, Coach, you figured out how to be condescending. You figured out how to be small because that's what you sound like in that moment with the microphone. You figured out how to berate somebody that's out there doing their job. And in a world where so many people do cover sports that didn't play those sports, it doesn't mean they're not qualified. You pushed a forward a narrative that absolutely harms everybody that works hard at covering your team and your sport. And guess what? You need that coverage in order to continue to recruit. You need that coverage in order to continue to grow your brand. You also represent a school with an incredible journalism and broadcast division. Like, what did you just say to everybody there that's working hard at trying to get into sports broadcasting? The fact is, I love this narrative every time it comes up because I'll always point to one person, Mina Kimes. Mina Kimes is the smartest person I've worked with at ESPN. She does draft content better than anybody. And I don't know what draft work she'll be doing this year, but I'll tell you this, you should watch it. I've worked with her on multiple years of the draft, and I've watched day three when we're on hour 17 of coverage with no commercials, and a pick I've never heard of comes up, and Amina immediately knows who it is, what they do, and how they do it. Because she works her butt off at being incredible with knowledge and tape, and works her butt off at studying everything you need to know about the draft. So, does that mean her opinion doesn't matter, Jim? And I'm calling you Jim, not coach, because you don't deserve the moniker of coach right now. Does that mean that she doesn't matter? When Sarah has an opinion on this show, does she not matter to you because she didn't play that particular sport? You're only allowed to comment on the things that you played. Okay, so does that mean, coach, that anybody that ever goes to a concert isn't qualified to give a review unless they've won a Grammy? Does that mean anybody that ever eats in a restaurant can't comment on the food if they haven't cooked next to Gordon Ramsay? Your logic is flawed, and it's insulting. Your logic, at the very least, speaks to stick to sports. And we ask athletes suddenly, all of a sudden, that we, we try and put athletes in this box on what they're allowed to talk about. How are you doing any different? Now, this isn't the first time this year that you put your foot in your mouth, coach. This isn't the first time this year that you've come out and given your archaic mindset when you talked about Jalen Johnson opting out of Duke. We can disagree about that all day long. And I can disagree with the message that it sent. But for you to come at a reporter... In front of a microphone, this was your opportunity to do better. It was your opportunity to be better, and it was your opportunity to be bigger. But what you showed everybody, what you showed your players, is that being a petulant child in front of the microphone is okay. What you showed your player is why handle anything one-on-one if you have an issue with it when you can instead go to the microphone and try and belittle someone. What you showed your players is that the only people that are allowed to hold them accountable to anything are the people that played the game. And what you showed all of your fans is that you, sir, have an archaic mindset around the way basketball should be covered. Because I will take the coverage of the great women that I've worked with at this network. I will take the coverage of L. Duncan all day over anything you have to say, Jim Beheim. I will take the coverage of Mina Kimes over anything you have to say about it. I will take the coverage of Sarah Spain every single night on this show. The 10,000 hour principle. We always hear it. You put 10,000 hours into something and you can be an expert at it. You put 10,000 hours into watching, studying, listening, learning. You put 10,000 hours into interviewing, writing, finding interesting angles. It benefits everybody. This isn't about media versus coaches or media versus players. I have no dog in that fight. This is about everybody treating everybody with some modicum of respect. If you don't like what a writer says, there are a million ways to handle it. 
but to belittle him because he didn't play basketball or he's five foot two? Man, I thought you were better than that, Jim Beheim. I thought that the Syracuse program that you built deserves a lot of respect. I think that you deserve respect for what you've done on the court for so many years. But you also would earn more respect if you were man enough, adult enough, I should say, to stand up and apologize. Because what you did was unnecessary, and what you did was attack somebody for not agreeing with your views. That's the entire problem we have everywhere. Like, if you just at some point can acknowledge that people can be great at their, their work because they work their asses off, that's a much better version. It's unfortunate, Jim Beheim. It's unfortunate that you took that angle, and I hope somebody somewhere holds you accountable. At the very least, I hope that writers stop writing about your school until you at least can stand up and say, hey, I didn't handle this the right way. Accountability is everything. That's going to be a theme coming into 2021. It's all about accountability. One person I know is always accountable, Freddie Coleman. Ian Fitzsimmons I can't speak for too much. He's the other Fitz. But Freddie and Fitzsimmons are going to be coming up next. Last I heard, they've got, uh, they've got seven different coaches, four NBA players, and three presidents all joining them on the show tonight. Be sure you check it out. Freddie and Fitzsimmons coming next. Thanks so much for hanging out with Spain and Fitz. We appreciate you. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.